We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I am Mike Pesca. All the world's attention is on Pelosi. What could this unsanctioned, irresponsible, clearly destructive little jaunt mean? Is Pelosi a problem operating outside the bounds of decorum or law? Will Pelosi face consequences? Fox News recognized in its coverage that America needed answers. Just an hour before his arraignment, we are learning new details about Paul Pelosi's behavior the night of his DUI arrest and how he tried to curry favor with the arriving officers. Yes, Paul Pelosi. One of the many traveling Pelosi's, she, via government transport, which engendered a military response, a massive military response, in fact, him crashing his Porsche into an SUV and being charged with having a 0.08 blood alcohol level. Drunk driving's bad. It's serious. But maybe not so serious as the agitation of a world superpower, a nuclear one at that. And remember... Because what's going on here is that even Nancy Pelosi's biggest critics in the Senate applauded her. So Fox News was in a bind. Standing up to China, good, in the Fox worldview. All the Republican senators also agreed, good. But of course, we know, forevermore, Pelosi bad. So what to do? We can still have a story of a bad Pelosi. Just not necessarily Nancy. Shift the emphasis onto the spouse of a government official. Oh, and the currying of favor? Well, I will quote the Fox.com report on this. Pelosi, this is Paul, allegedly handed officers his driver's license and a 9-11 foundation card when they asked for his ID, according to the documents. The 9-11 foundation is a California highway patrol charity that supports officers and provides scholarships for their children. The implication being, I'm a good guy, I support the cops. By the way, that's the only reason why you carry around a California Highway Patrol charity card or a PBA card. So when you get pulled over by the cops, you show them your license in your wallet, but right next to it is this PBA, hey, I'm nice to the cops type card. The arraignment that Fox News was previewing all morning and in fact much of last night when they got the leaked documents about the California Highway Patrol card Uh, It went like this, very detailed. You might want a pencil to follow along. Paul Pelosi's lawyer pled not guilty, and the next court date was set for August 23rd. But if you want a real date with the American legal system, down in Texas, everything's bigger, including the 400 PSA fire hose torrent of bullshit spewing from civil defendant Alex Jones. He's being sued by families of the children killed in Sandy Hook. Jones is engaged in what clearly is a legal strategy as using the trial as a stage to advance his program, InfoWars. In fact, on InfoWars yesterday, Jones's show aired a segment alleging that the judge in this case was abetting a pedophile ring. The plaintiff's lawyers played a clip of that for Jones and the jury to see. Judge Maya Gamble comes from CPS, who has been exposed for human trafficking and working with pedophiles. When Jones complained, bah, the clip's only five seconds, there might have been a lot of interesting exculpatory language around what you just heard and the accompanying visual of the judge's face bathed in hellfire, the plaintiff's lawyer asked this, which elicited a fine response. 
Does it matter? Is there anything before and after that that would make it great to show pictures of our judge on fire and telling the world she's involved in pedophile? Can you tell me the context that would occur before or after that makes that I'm sorry. Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> I believe you. If you're only wanting to go off five seconds, I believe the thing is the judge is the fire burning Lady Liberty. It's not the judge. It's, it, you know, the judge is consuming freedom. A jury whose time and attention is taken up by a proceeding usually identifies with a judge. The judge orients them, explains things to them, asks them if they need breaks. A jury, even if they're not so into the judge, and they usually are, and don't like the judge being insulted and defamed, but a jury definitely believes in its own wisdom or at least diligence. But there were clips played of Jones insulting the jury, intimating that they were part of a conspiracy against him. Then there was a section of the trial where... Judge Gamble asked witness questions written by jurors, and this came up. Are you aware that this jury consists of 16 intelligent, fair-minded citizens who are not being improperly influenced in any way? Yes, I don't think that you are operatives. I don't think that you are part of a false flag. I've not even played for you the lengthy sections of Jones's testimony where he was caught lying about his finances, his use of email, and about when he actually corrected the record on Sandy Hook, if he corrected the record on Sandy Hook. Pretty much every assertion he made in his testimony was effectively called into question by counsel. Because, you know, this really isn't a trial. It's a sideshow so that the Infowar crowd continues to cheer him on and keep him funded. The jury, in all likelihood, will find him liable for damages and maybe a lot of damages. Whatever that award is will be held up on appeal. Bafflingly, Jones's own appeal to his audience will probably continue on even stronger than before the trial. On the show today, well, I'll admit, what you just heard took a little while, got there, lots of crazy clips to play, but... I wanted to give you your money's worth. There shall be no spiel today, but it's fine. It's by design. It's because we got two scholars to talk about that Pelosi trip, the Nancy Pelosi trip. She is the person second in line to succeed the president, and she visited a country, China would say a territory, in a gesture that was enormously provocative. But was it needlessly provocative? We will discuss with USC's David Kang and the Eurasia Group's Neil Thomas up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was framed and decried and applauded as an act of recklessness or fecklessness or bravery or something else. During the time, the Chinese military engaged in exercises around the island, which amounted to a blockade of its sea and airspace, the defense ministry said. Tangibly, you ready for this as a consequence? They have blocked fish and citrus fruit imports from Taiwan. But what will the real effects be and how wise was this trip? Was it worth it? Was anything gained? Joining me now are two esteemed China and Taiwan watchers. Neil Thomas is senior China analyst at the Eurasia Group. Welcome to The Gist, Neil. Thanks for having me, Mike. And David C. Kang is professor of international relations at the University of Southern California. He also has an appointment to the business school. Just so you know, it's not just his expertise extends beyond just international relations. Professor Kang, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. So I'll frame this as many people have put forward this idea. I'll just quote a headline in a Thomas Friedman article. Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is utterly reckless. On a scale of one to 10 to orient me and our listeners, I'd like each of you to tell me where you stand in relation to that assertion, zero being total disagreement and 10 being Friedman nailed it. Professor Kang, why don't you go first? Well... I certainly don't think she should have gone. But in terms of recklessness, this was never going to start World War III, uh, and it was never going to be nothing. So I don't agree that it was you know, utterly reckless, but certainly I wouldn't have gone. But this was not a major crisis the way that it's been played up. Okay, a quibble with the adverb. It was minorly reckless. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Okay. And what do you think, Neil? I think it's true that Pelosi going to Taiwan has increased cross-strait tension and has contributed to the the risks of a military accident or confrontation in the the Taiwan Strait. But uh, fundamentally, it wasn't quite a provocation of enough magnitude to prompt Beijing to uh, do anything utterly utterly reckless itself um, in terms of attacking Taiwan or trying to confront Pelosi's plane or confront other US military in the region. So, I mean, the question of whether she should have gone or not, uh, I think it certainly you know has these negative effects, but I think we also have to look at uh, I mean, Taiwan itself, the government, and a lot of Taiwanese people gave her a very warm welcome. Uh, so there's certainly, uh, the sense I got was that the level of alarm in Taipei uh, was actually less than the level of alarm in, in DC. So I'd agree that it's certainly something that contributes to risks, um, but that the risks of this particular action uh, were not going to blow up in the short term, although it's, we've got to look to the longer term. You know, Beijing's reaction is going to play out in days, months, years um, from what it sees as a, a kind of a, a move by the U.S. to support Taiwan in a much more um, tangible way. 
Yeah, I noted that many Taiwanese officials, the actual officials in power now, welcome them. If you heard from people who were high up in Taiwanese uh, officialdom society positions, Enoch Wu, founder of the Taipei-based security and defense think tank Forward Alliance, who used to be on the Security Council, said the fear of Chinese retaliation should not dictate engagement between partners, partners being the United States and Taipei. It would be a very positive step forward, said Vincent Chow who was essentially Taiwan's ambassador to the United States. So if the Taiwanese like it and they would bear the brunt of a Chinese invasion, I was thinking to myself, should we not defer to their opinions? Is that a reasonable read, Professor Kang? You know, I mean, there have been unofficial, official, it's hard to say because we have never decided what that line is between an official uh, you know, U.S. government visit, right? So they, these things go on all the time. She's the highest ranking official in, what, 25 years or something like that, which is why it's a big deal. Um, this is not, you know, the 43rd congressman from California going over to, to look at some semiconductor plan. Um, so on the one hand, sure, yeah, I mean, the Taiwanese can, can uh, support it or not. But the question is, and the real reason that I oppose it is like, we have so much going on right now. The U.S.-China relationship is so complicated right now there was no reason for this visit. It just unnecessarily makes things even worse across the range of issues the U.S. and China have to deal with. It's not like China did anything, so we had to respond, or Taiwan did anything. She did it on her own, and that's caused us to spend all this time when we don't have to, and it's making it worse. So no, I don't think she should have done it. Why do you think she did it? I have no idea, and what's interesting, I mean, you know, she framed, she published that op-ed in the, in the Washington Post about democracies, uh, which was a little odd given that she just went to Singapore, right? Which is not the most democratic country in the world, right? So, I, you know, and that framing is just pure propaganda, right? She's had a history of she really cares about human rights in China. You know, we all know she went in 1990. You know, my colleague at the U.S.-China Institute here um, wrote an op-ed about how he was arrested when it was over there and she laid the flowers. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's reasons why she cares about democracy and human rights. But again, as a politician or as a diplomat, was this the time to go? And I'm not sure it was. The status quo was working pretty well. Is there ever a time to go? Given, you know, I can't point to the time in the since Newt Gingrich visited when I would say, yes, we should send the vice president there. Yeah, I think that um, the timing was more provocative than usual, simply because the 20th Party Congress, which is a twice a decade leadership reshuffle, is happening this October or November. Xi Jinping is you know, widely expected to uh, take a third term as Communist Party leader, which defies recent precedents. So there's a kind of pressure to have everything working well, to have stability uh, leading into this kind of political coronation for Xi Jinping. So there's a particular um, need to you know, defend his nationalist credentials and to, you know, at least have a strong show of force, which is what hap what's happening right now. We're seeing unprecedented military drills and missile tests in the waters around Taiwan. That said, um, Xi Jinping still enjoys a very dominant position in the Chinese political system. So I think some of the commentary out there that suggests that you know, this is putting Xi under a huge amount of pressure and that he has to do something extreme to uh, defend himself from attacks is a bit off base because Xi's already in a strong position. So for him, the imperative is, to be, uh, is for stability and to avoid anything going drastically wrong, 
which starting a military confrontation or conflict would potentially do, given how unpredictable it would be. So the timing is a little bit sensitive, more sensitive than usual right now. But uh, that said, I mean, yeah, there's from China's perspective, there's never a good time. And I think the uh, previous congressional delegations and Pelosi's trips shows that there's, you know, only a limited appetite for uh, starting something really serious from a military perspective now. Although the more that the US keeps uh, doing this and potentially pressing towards China's red lines, the more likely it is that Beijing feels that it needs to escalate its military responses. Well, you brought up the idea of risk a couple times. Okay, I think I'm hearing both of you say that it, well, I, there's a slight difference. Uh, Kang says wasn't quite worth the risk. And Thomas says wasn't a huge risk, but not sure it was worth it. But what about the rewards? Articulate for me either what she thought the rewards could be, or, and if you agree with her, what you think the rewards might be, maybe even in an abstract sense. I think um, in terms of why Pelosi's going, I think we have to look at her kind of personal political career. She's the House Speaker, but Democrats are probably going to lose the uh, House in the midterms. So that's effectively the end of her career, likely, as she's 82 years old. Um, as a senior leader in U.S. politics. So she wants to have a, a capstone to that career and really make a statement about her support for human rights and democracy in Asia and her, you know, opposition to the Communist Party. So I think in terms of the timing from Pelosi's point of view, that's a big reason why she's going now. And you know, also there's the backdrop of you know, increasing tensions across the strait, Beijing's more assertive diplomacy. So you know, to show a support for, uh, for Taiwan. Um, so I think that's the, the reward she saw in it. Um, and I think that's also the, the reward that Taiwan sees, uh, or at least you know, there's obviously differences of opinion in Taiwan itself, but the, the current government, which is more um, uh, anti-mainland than the, the opposition, if you like, which is not necessarily pro-unification, but it's more friendly to the mainland, um, supported this because I think they see having these uh, gestures of support as something that can signal to Beijing that Taiwan has powerful friends and that there are huge risks uh, of the US getting involved if Beijing were to attempt any type of invasion or, or escalation in the Taiwan Straits. Uh, and there's also a domestic political angle in, in Taiwan. Um, this is a, a political uh, win for the, the governing DPP, you know, showing the support, getting a high-level visit, and that could help them in the, the midterm elections that are coming up in November in Taiwan as well as in the U.S. Okay, so I'm a staffer, uh, let's, let's say chief of staff for Nancy Pelosi, and I give a call to uh, Professor Kang at USC, a little bit uh, further away from me than San Francisco, an esteemed expert. And I'm like, Dave, she wants to go. She says to me, what's the point of being Speaker of the House if I can't do these things and I'm not going to be Speaker of the House forever? What should I tell her? What would you say to him? Well, again, I mean, from from her perspective, I think I think Neil's uh, put it right. I mean, there's again, she's got this personal commitment. She's a politician, et cetera. Right? What, what I think is uh, surprising and what was really surprising, you know, she announced it back in April, then didn't go for a bunch of reasons. But there's been no discussion of this. Usually when you go, there's a long uh, buildup. Everybody announces it. They talk about it. She, Biden kept quiet. She, it's really mystifying as to what was going on. Well, I would, if I could guess, I think it's probably a better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission type decision. Which is why this is such an interesting or a, or a fraught 
issue because it's clearly not a administration national policy to go. And she's going on her own. She's flying solo, whatever. You know, you're off the blah, 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 right? Like, it's confusing. So I would say be clear about why you're going and what you hope to gain because I'm not sure anybody gained that much other than we are inching closer, as Neil said, towards what I think is a very dangerous American policy of abandoning the sort of one, you know, the, the four decades of established American policy. And I think that would be really dangerous for to do. Okay, so her going might screw our courage to the sticking point a little bit. It's a step in that direction. Absolutely. Well, then it might have, you know, if you only talk about your commitments, that's one thing. If you do something to more forcefully demonstrate your commitments, then your commitments become a bit more committed, right? But that is exactly the question is, what is our commitment to Taiwan? And one of the points that I've, I, for the last five months, I've been asked, what does China learn from the Russia, you know, from Ukraine? And I say, I'm not sure it's China that should learn something. I think maybe Taiwan ought to learn something, which is, to me, the U.S. is very careful about getting in a war with a nuclear-armed superpower. That's the blessing. You know, so what are our commitments? That's the question. We have left them purposefully vague so that we don't lock ourselves in. And do you think that Taiwan would look at the United States reaction, which was an arm's length support and giving 12 HIMAR missile systems, but not the 20 or 30 they want, and be heartened and encouraged or be more worried? I've been going to Taiwan for, what, 25 years and stuff, right? And what has been clear is that usually the U.S. is the one egging on Taiwan to buy high-powered weapons, and Taiwan is usually reluctant to do so, right? I'm not sure that Taiwan sees a military solution to their relationship with China, right? They don't have to invade, like, Normandy on D-Day, right? But, the, you know, the risks of military action are tremendous for the Taiwanese. And so I think that's one component, but I don't think they first start with, we're going to have a war against China and we're going to win. And that's, I think, the danger that the Americans are, is that we view it all in that lens. But I think there's a lot more going on. Yeah, I think the Ukraine crisis and Russia's invasion is a, a lesson that's still being learned in the sense that the situation is not over. Like we don't yet necessarily have a set of clear takeaways from a discrete event. Like things are still happening that are being watched very closely, both in China and in Taiwan. Uh, so, I mean, you could see that Beijing taking a lesson that this is really difficult to try and, you know, take over territory from a people that don't want you there and that have you know, great and powerful friends. We saw uh, the uh, reaction from the West in terms of you know, military support, but especially economic sanctions directed at Russia being, you know, far more extreme and, you know, I think still far more sustained than people were expecting uh, would be possible beforehand in terms of moving away from Russian energy and incurring costs to uh, punish Russia. So there's certainly a precedent there that suggests to Beijing right now that, you know, escalating tensions in a really dangerous way, you know, unlike we've seen so far, uh, could be extremely costly. And you know, China, st still, she is a bit more constrained by the institutions of the Communist Party and the expectations of the Chinese people for continued uh, economic growth than Putin is, who's basically, there is, economic growth is no longer a, uh, a key goal of the Russian state, but still is, very much so for the Communist Party. Right. Not widespread, at least. Economic growth for his, you know, 20 oligarchs maybe is to a bit.
yeah, having enough uh, money to you know keep the military going and keep the security services supporting his personal rule. Uh, you know, China, the Russian economy has been a disaster um, for the Russian people since 2014 and the invasion of Crimea. But I think the thing I was uh, going to say is that um, this Western response is still developing. So if we saw a you know diminution of Western pressure on Russia or the sanctions regime falling apart because countries just uh, you know abandon it because it's too costly, then that could change how Beijing thinks about uh, Taiwan and you know potentially uh, the costs of doing anything would be be lower um, than previously thought. So. I think that's from the Chinese point of view as well as from the Taiwanese point of view. There's you know lessons being learnt from how this situation evolves in uh, in Ukraine. All right, we're going to take a break for a quick second, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the lessons of Hong Kong and if this trip by Speaker Pelosi didn't cause a war, what might? Talk to you in a minute. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. We're back speaking with Neil Thomas and David Kang. Question for you. So if we acknowledge, or as both of you gentlemen have said, unlikely that this would start a war, and it seems not to have, what might start a war? What might be the signals or the developments that prompt China to invade, or as they would see it, engage in a reclamation project? They do these live fire exercises. They do, uh, you know, they send planes through the ADIS, uh, the Air Defense Identification Zone of Taiwan. Um, but it's really hard to tell. I mean, the, the biggest clue that we have is the Chinese have made very, very clear that if Taiwan declares formal independence, they will use force. So that would be the biggest clue to me that they're going to do it. And I believe them, and most of us do, right? That this is, they're not fooling around, and they're doing everything they can. And they talk very differently about Taiwan than they do about South China Seas, where they say, let's work it out, let's not use force. They say, we will use force if you declare public independence. And so that would be the biggest clue to me. There's also wording they use, and I think Neil knows better than I do, but they said, like, before Vietnam in 79 and India in 62, they said, don't say you haven't been warned. I mean, it's very much more rhetoric than they were using now. The kind of rhetoric they use now about we were prepared to fight, they say all the time. <laughs> right? But there are some very clear things they almost never say, which to me would be like, uh-oh, time to, time to start taking it seriously. Yeah, we'd also see on the military side a, a build-up across from the Taiwan Strait beyond, you know, normal exercises. So in the same way that um, 
the Biden administration uh, was warning about Russia's potential invasion of Ukraine for many months before it happened, uh, we'd be getting similar clues from satellite intelligence about Chinese military movements uh, if, you know, a full-scale invasion was in the offing. In terms of things that other things to watch in terms of warning signals, um, I think the, the Chinese um, Communist Party's official position on Taiwan are really important watch points, especially, you know, what's said at this 20th Party Congress later this year. So currently the line from the Communist Party, which is, you know, it's meaningful because this is the instructions that it sends to its millions of cadres and public servants and its 95 plus million members. So what they say is, is meaningful uh, in that sense. And they're currently saying that, you know, time and momentum are always on our side when it comes to the, the unification of the, the motherland, to use Beijing's terminology. And that suggests that Beijing is not looking in to, to rush this uh, reunification. It's trying to still achieve its stated objective of peaceful unification. Um, that's clearly a reason why they'd prefer that. Uh, not going to war is far cheaper. It's far less dangerous for China's economy and international reputation. It's also far less uh, risky for um, the Chinese leader at the time, because if you launched an invasion and it didn't go right, or you failed, or it became a kind of Vietnam-type quagmire, then that could seriously undermine Xi Jinping himself. So you'd have to be really sure uh, that you'd be able to, to pull it off. So at the moment, it seems the party is still, you know, trying to build its advantage in terms of its military power, its economic position, its uh, political sway to, you know, eventually you know, force or potentially coerce some type of peaceful unification without war in the future. So undergirding that point is an assumption that I recognize in the West, which is we believe that China will act in their rational self-interest as we think we understand it. When it comes to other nuclear states, that's less true. North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un is certainly seen as more of a live wire and Putin upended our expectations in that mostly now we said, well, that was a surprise. I don't think that was in his self-interest to invade Ukraine, although after the fact, we're beginning to understand why it might have been. But here is my question concern. And it's something you've been both been noting, but I read an article that you wrote, Neil, about it. The wolf warriors, these diplomats who are saying things that aren't exactly in line with the caution of the Communist Party. And I wonder, are they lone wolf warriors? Are they, are they loose cannons? Should we worry more about a really aggressive, nationalistic, off-the-reservation, off-script uh, component in China's foreign policy? And might that change what their own perception is in terms of rational self-interest? Well, I'd say that the, the wolf warriors are very much acting in line with what um, Xi Jinping wants from China's diplomats. Um, there's not really such thing as uh, freelancing in the Communist Party system. You can certainly try and push the boundaries and take some risks under current direction. And that's perhaps how some of this more bellicose rhetoric got started. But the fact it's continuing uh, indicates that it's something that the party uh, wants to keep happening. And we've seen you know, language from Xi himself that uh, you know, China should more assertively defend its interests in the world. So I think we have to um, yeah, differentiate what we might think the, the rational, self-interested way for China to act would be, uh, which would not include um, having a territorial claim over Taiwan, 
from what Beijing, at least the Communist Party, considers to be its own self-interest. And from their point of view, um, you know, unifying with Taiwan, which they believe is Chinese territory and they should have sovereignty to, that's in their interest. Um, so they're going to move the system and try and, you know, achieve that goal. But they're also, they're not totally unhinged about the risks of moving against Taiwan. I mean, they've wanted to take Taiwan ever since the Communist Party established the uh, People's Republic in 1949. But, you know, 73 years later, there hasn't really been a significant, you know, action to actually reclaim sovereignty. Um, So that suggests there's, you know, obviously a pragmatic consideration to some degree about can we do this? And China's certainly more capable than ever before of doing that. But there's still at least some level of awareness that this would be very difficult, very costly, and would you know, fundamentally alter uh, China's relationship with, uh, with the world. I have two thoughts that I, I say about Taiwan all the time, which is this isn't a PRC concern. When you talk about what's rational, we can go back to 1895, where the Qing dynasty said, if Japan takes Taiwan from us, it will be a permanent, it, you know, we will be enemies forever, etc. This is trans-dynastic in a way, right? It's not, it's not that no one cared about Taiwan before. They explicit, this was Chinese territory, so to speak, right? Um, and historically, we always talk, oh, it wasn't blah, blah, blah. The people, the indigenous peoples on Taiwan 200 years ago, whatever, never formed their own government, kingdom, and engaged in tribute relations with China or Korea or Japan. The Yukus did. Okinawa was. Okinawa was conquered. It had, it had formal diplomatic status in pre-modern Asia. Taiwan never did, right? So I don't want to quibble about it, but this has been an enduring Chinese concern. So when you saw, like, as Neil said, as a, as, you know, is it rational? Yes, for them. This is, this is not, oh, who cares? This is part of Chinese territory, the way Hong Kong was, etc., right? That was taken over the last 100 years or so. I think time is on China's side in this, right? The, 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 the move to, from, from containing Taiwan and pressuring them to opening the doors to the economy and allowing Taiwanese to come back has been spectacularly successful on the Chinese side. Trade, investment, travel. It was the Taiwanese government that was trying to limit cross-strait relations because they knew what would happen, right? So I think... If the Chinese have a long-term view, they're like, you know, this is, this is going in our direction. And I would contrast that with North and South Korea, where there's been no change over the last 75 years or whatever, right? So, you know, I'm not so sure that they view it as necessarily all negative. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a lot more complicated. Time's on their side. Do they really say we think in centuries or is that just something we think they say? Well, they did wait, what, 100 years to get Hong Kong back, right? And that's what I mean. It's like, if, you know, if you look at it this way... Um, and they say, you can do whatever you want, just don't declare formal independence. The status quo is working pretty well. Yeah. To me, Hong Kong hangs over this in a huge way. It's a tragedy. It's heartbreaking. I think in America, it's a thing that happened. And since we didn't have any troops there, we didn't pay much attention. But there were 8 million free people in the world, Western-facing democracy, and now there aren't. And I don't know if we or any of the other world world superpowers could have done anything about it, but we didn't do anything and Hong Kong fell, essentially. And I was wondering if there's an argument for some sort of more forceful intervention in Taiwan just so we don't let Hong Kong happen again. Or am I making a bad analogy? I think that uh, the point about Hong Kong 
very usefully highlights some differences with the the Taiwan situation. So Hong Kong, despite being a special administrative region, uh, has been you know, recognized as sovereign Chinese territory, at least under the agreements that were signed before its handover you know, since 1997. Um, China's obviously violated some of those uh, agreements that it made with the, the British, the Sino-British Joint Treaty. And you know what's happened in Hong Kong uh, is, as you said, you know, a tragedy for um, democracy and, and human rights. Um, Taiwan, though, is not under any type of formal, you know, um, Chinese jurisdiction. And it's also much more difficult to, to I guess, uh, use military to kind of intimidate or attack. There's a huge strait in between it rather than just uh, a land border. Um, so there's logistical difficulties there. Um, but I think that it also go, takes us back to the, the first part of our conversation about what's uh, the most uh, effective things the U.S. and its leaders to be doing uh, to help protect Taiwan, and I, you know, agree that the Pelosi trip might be symbolically important, but it doesn't do a lot to uh, to change the kind of hard power calculus between uh, China, Taiwan, the United States, and its allies. So I think that you know the priority um, should be for the U.S. to you know invest in military deterrence and to ensure that you know, Taiwan and its allies in the region is um, prepared to um, you know, invest in security in the Indo-Pacific and to make any type of Chinese um, escalation or invasion as costly and unlikely as possible. I think that's right. I think, you know, where we are right now is uh, a situation where I would like to see the American policymaking establishment maybe think a little more closely about the risks and benefits of egging Taiwan on and pushing them forward to make a decision that we may not be ready to uh, support them on. Uh, but in general, I think that the situation isn't nearly as dangerous as um, we've been sort of seeing in the foreign policy making press. Um, all three sides still have a pretty clear understanding of what each other wants and what each other expects. And so I don't see that having been um, unalterably changed by uh, Pelosi's trip. The last voice you heard was David King, professor of international relations at the University of Southern California. And we were also joined by Neil Thomas, the senior China analyst for the Eurasia Group. Gentlemen, thank you both so very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. And that's it for today's show. Assistant producer Corey War is not covered by Alex Jones's hell fired. He just fired up about coverage of the Alex Jones trial. Senior producer Joel Patterson does not believe that you, the audience, to be more than ah, seven or eight percent lizard people. The thing about Peachfish Production COO Michelle Pesca is she's not in the fire or of the fire. She's more like lighting a fire under all of us to properly adhere to HR protocols. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.